So Matt, I, I'm thinking about starting a company that makes corduroy pillows. And I was wondering if you might want to invest. Corduroy pillows. Corduroy pillows. They're going to be making headlines. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> I'm waiting on the punchline and you, you shoot it in there before I was ready. Yep, snuck that one in there, man. <laughs> I like that joke. I, I, I've been sitting on that one for a little while. Uh, <laughs> so I, I can see why. Yeah, <laughs> sitting on it, it's making butt lines. Um, so first of all, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, HERS. Um, great company, doing great things, and we're glad that they are supporting the show. Um, also, we would like to thank Parker from L.A. for the mail. Um, that we got, got a cool little, uh, letter from Los Angeles. So yeah, that, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. We appreciate that very much. Um, another little bit of news is Ashley has redesigned our website for us. If you haven't gone and checked it out yet, please do. Um, we're going to be adding more pictures from inside the graveyard and stuff like that. Give y'all kind of another look at it. Um, and some updated photos. Cause some of those photos are a little old. Yeah. Um, We've added a spot where you can go find all of our sponsor promos and stuff real easy to find so that if you hear us talk about one that you're interested in and you don't catch the promo code, you can go there to the website and find it. Yep. Um, all the usual links and all that stuff, but it's kind of in a, a better, easier format to yeah. work and, through. And on that note for the, for the sponsors, even if you don't think this product is right for you, Check out, you know, go to the URL because it's telling our sponsors that, hey, we're actually reaching people. Right. And that's important, not necessarily for us, but for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because they, they realize that advertising on the podcast format is beneficial. Exactly. Because they're actually reaching people. Somebody exactly. is actually listening. And, and this week's sponsor, HERS, is a newer company. So they need that input that, yes, they're their advertisements on the podcast genre is working and we know it works, but we want to pass that along to them so that they know, but that's all I got for the intro, Matt. So let's get into tonight's topic. What are we talking about tonight? Okay. Tonight we're, we're, we're going to stay essentially in our backyard. So we're going to be talking about Octagon Hall in Franklin, Kentucky, mm -hmm. which for Adam and I, is only about an hour's drive from the graveyard. Yep. I mean, so it it's close and it's pretty scary. It is. It's spooky. Yeah. And and the funny thing about this is that last week, depending on when you're listening to this, the, the week before we're recording this show was spring break for my kids. Right. And so my kids all had different things they were doing for spring break. Well, one of them went to Mammoth Cave mm -hmm. up in Kentucky with a friend and their family. 
And unbeknownst to us, on the way, they stopped at Octagon Hall. Of course they did. And they were sending us pictures of the kids out in front of Octagon <laughs> Hall. And so I get this picture on my phone and I'm like, wait, we're researching that place right now. Right. <laughs> So you talk about synchronicities, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's weird, man. It it really is weird that that I guess we were destined to do this episode right. when we're doing it, you know. But this place really, I mean, it's got some history that would lead it to have some some real paranormal activity going mm-hmm. on. It really would, and. It's got such a unique shape and, you know, all, like I said, all this history. And I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected it to be like, like it was. Mm-hmm. And when, when we started digging into this, I was finding stories. I was like, holy cow, you know, this is going on right here. Right. You know, I even told Adam before we started, I figured we'd get some footsteps and door slams and cold spots and we get all of that. Mm-hmm. But man, we get a lot more. Yeah. So, and, and it, it, like you said, it was surprising because, you, you know, you see some of the videos and some of the videos you see don't have the, the coolest things on there. Yeah. They've got the, the normal stuff that you'd think of door closing and, and such, but there's some stuff that we found that was pretty crazy. Yeah. So Adam, why don't you tell us about the history of this place and why we would we would focus on such a location for it possibly being haunted? I don't want to. <laughs> well, you're gonna. All right, fine. All right. <laughs> All right. So, in 1847, Andrew Jackson Caldwell started laying the foundation for his new family home. Well, he didn't want to do the normal, you know, four-sided home that everybody else was doing. So he decided to build an eight-sided foundation. Now, he completed the building in 1859. All of the bricks that he used to build Octagon Hall were handmade on the plantation from clay and materials from the property. So it all comes from right there. Now, he built this for his growing family as a headquarters for the plantation, and it was occupied by the Caldwell family even after Andrew's death in 1866. His widow, Harriet, lived in Octagon Hall until she sold the house in 1918 to Dr. Miles Williams, who is an osteopath from Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Williams moved from Nashville and made the Octagon Hall his residence until his death in 1954. Now, at that time, the Octagon Hall was made rental property by his heirs. So the Octagon Hall remained rental property until the Octagon Hall Foundation was formed and obtained the building in 2001. They dedicated this to the restoration and preservation of what is the only eight-sided house in Kentucky. Can you imagine that rental listing? Yeah. (laughs) Large eight-sided home for rent. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What? (laughs) No. No, Carol, I don't think we're going to be renting this house. That's... That's that's twice as many walls I have to paint. Exactly. <laughs> that's a whole lot more corners I got to sweep. So um, the Octagon Hall Foundation is still furthering the efforts to save the, the past for the future. So they're working on, you know, restoring and 
and keeping up this historic home. Now, Bowling Green was the Confederate capital of Kentucky. Now, it evacuated on February 18th, 1862. Now, Mr. Caldwell was a supporter of the Confederacy, and the house was used throughout the Civil War as a sanctuary and a hospital, which we'll talk about a little more in a minute. But the Union Army came shortly after this evacuation in pursuit of the Confederate Army. Now, apparently the Union Army was really not in any hurry to confront the Confederate forces there because they waited around for two days before they actually arrived at Octagon Hall. But when they got there, they ended up mistreating the family that was at, at the hall. Um, they, they killed all the cattle there, and they even killed what was supposedly Mrs. Caldwell's favorite milk cow named Old Spot. Why would you kill the favorite I know, milk what cow? did milk cow do? Uh, didn't do anything to you. You're just mean. So they ended up eating everything that was in sight. Um, now, the, the facts were never re- related about whether they, uh, what they did to the family as, as well as any of the other women and children that were on the property. So we don't have any of that information, which is good because I really didn't want to read that information. Um, but they ended up taking the cattle carcasses and they threw them into the wells so that the water would be contaminated, which would force the family to go get their water elsewhere. Now, they threatened to burn them down, the property. Well, Mr. Caldwell had enough balls to basically call their bluff. And he yelled out of the front door, go right ahead. My brother just left and he'll come back looking for you. And his brother was high up in the Confederate army. So they ended up, you know, not doing that because yeah. they, that was enough of a, uh, of a threat to them that they were like, well, I don't want to do that. Cause if he just left, he could circle back around and right. attack from behind. So they decided, well, we're not going to burn it down. Obviously, since it's still there. Now we talked about, uh, the hall being used as a hospital and recovery site for Confederate soldiers after skirmishes that happened in Simpson County. So let's talk for a minute about hospitals and medical practices during the Civil War to kind of get a feel for what what all could have happened at these makeshift hospitals like Octagon Hall. So for medical practitioners in the field during Civil War, germ theory or antiseptic medical practices and advanced equipment and organized hospitalization systems were virtually unknown. Medical training was just emerging out of what is known as the heroic era, which the heroic era of of medicine is a time where physicians advocated bloodletting, purging, blistering, or a combination of all of these to rebalance the humors of the body and remedy the sick. That's not very funny. It's not very funny, but they, they got to rebalance them so that, so that it is funny. And, you know, the, the, the treatment's worse than what's yeah. going on sometimes. Yeah. Well, as, as just an aside, that, that's what they think killed George Washington because he ended up getting a cold and his doctors thought that bloodletting would be the cure. Yeah. So they, they had multiple bloodletting sessions over multiple days and they ended up Letting him out. Yep, letting too much blood out, and they assume that's what killed George Washington. I so, figured he got a splinter from those wooden teeth. Yeah, no, 
He was used to those. He built up calluses. <laughs> Um, now they often treated disease with stuff like mercury, which as we know is toxic. Yeah. Um, to say the least, really. We know that now. Yeah. We know that now (laughs) they didn't then. Now, some of the contributing factors to disease related deaths included poor sanitation and overcrowding of the camps and of the hospitals. Um, the ignoring of the sanitation by line officers, inadequate pre-enlistment screening of recruits, poor diet, lack of immunity to childhood diseases, and few specific treatments for diseases. But some of the other things that really tied into the death around this time was there were new advancements in military weaponry, and their fighting styles had not advanced that much. So they were blowing them away with all these new guns and all that with antiquated fighting styles. So some of the statistics of the injuries that you would see at these hospitals is from mini ball shot. And a mini ball is basically a, it's a type of muzzle loading spinning stabilized bullet for rifled muskets. Now, the soft lead that allowed the mini balls to expand within the rifle barrel also caused them to flatten out or splinter when they hit the body. So that caused the most amount of damages to the body during the Civil War. There were estimated around 108,000 of these just in the first part of the war. So that, that was about 76% of the injuries. Um, others would be just the round musket balls with, with about 16,000, um, fragments of shells from people was about 12,000 and they had explosive musket balls, believe it or not, they had explosions and that was only about 139. Well, you, you add all these up and you've got massive amounts of injuries that are flooding hospitals. So they had to make makeshift hospitals like Octagon Hall. Now, three out of every four of the surgical procedures that they would perform at these hospitals during the war were amputations. Each amputation took about two to ten minutes to complete. Ten minutes? Mm Mm-hmm. That's fast. Yep. During that time, you had (laughs) to hurry. Two two minutes meant you used a hatchet. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, You had to hurry during this time because the main thing that was used for anesthesia was chloroform because it had a quicker onset. Yeah. Um, It could be used in small volumes and it was non-flammable. Yeah, knock them out. But it didn't last long. So you got to move quick. Yeah, knock them out and move quick. And the quicker you move, the less blood lost. So the less likely they are to die from that. Yeah. Now, Amputations were not really carried out using sterile technique, believe it or not. Yeah. Because the Lister's classic paper on antisepsis didn't appear until after the war in 1867. And you know, you may know Lister from germ theory and all that if you're into kind of what Matt's into the, yeah, you know, um, Listerine. Exactly. Yeah. Listerine. That was in 1867. He'd dump it on wounds. <laughs> <laughs> you're bleeding, but your wound is minty fresh. No, it smells wonderful. <laughs> no, 
If you've ever used the original Listerine, you know that's not true. Yeah, don't put that on anything. <laughs> don't even put that in your mouth. <laughs> Bresma's like, are you on medication? Yeah. There used to be uh, <laughs> used to be guys uh, in downtown Dallas that would drink original brown Listerine because it was cheaper than alcohol. Ugh. Yeah. But, you know, it's you, hard times. You know. <laughs> now, uh, some of the amputations uh, to talk about, amputations performed closer to the torso resulted in a higher death rate. The further away from the torso, like a forearm or lower leg, the greater the chances you'd survive. So, for example, a hip amputation had a 100% mortality rate. Yeah. So if you got hit in the hip, you were done for. Yeah. Even if you survived the initial blast and made it to hospital, you were done because they, they couldn't amputate. You would die. Okay, so this week's sponsor is a newer company, and, and we really love this company. We think they're doing great things for people, and we're very happy that they're a supporter of the show. And tonight's sponsor is HERS. And as everybody knows, getting birth control is a hassle, and it can take a lot of time, but you're not alone. There's more than 10 million women in the U.S. that take the pill, and they struggle to receive it all the time. But hers says it's time to level the healthcare playing field. So shall we? Yeah, and you may wonder, you know, what do a couple of guys on a podcast know about birth control for women? Well, we know this: guys have it easy. You know, birth control for guys is easily available, and it's inexpensive. So, hers is putting forth a way to take the hassle and the expensive cost out of getting birth control for women. And it's great. So For hers puts the purchasing power back in your hands, bundling all the costs of receiving your birth control into one low price of $30 and without the need for insurance. So no more booking time off work to go to a doctor's appointment or stand in pharmacy lines or listening to insurance company on hold music. In every way possible, for hers would like to take this hassle off of your plate. And they know that everybody's body is different. So for hers offers 10 well-known birth control options. Now whether you're already taking birth control or you have no idea where to start, for hers will connect you to a doctor online who can help determine the option that will work best for you. Now graveyard tells listeners can get their first month of birth control from hers.com for just $5 right now while supplies last. So you can go to their website and see the full details. Go to forhers.com slash graveyard. That's F-O-R-H-E-R-S dot com slash graveyard. That's right. It's forhers.com slash graveyard. Restrictions apply. See website for full details. There were also few useful medications at the time. About two-thirds of all the drugs that they used at the time were botanicals. Now, in 1860, Oliver Wendell Holmes stated at the annual meeting of the Massachusetts Medical Society. He said, I firmly believe 
that if the whole Materia Medica, as now used, could be sunk to the bottom of the sea, it would be all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes. <laughs> so that's how bad he thought the, the medication at the time was. Um, now, medications that were helpful included quinine for malaria, morphine, chloroform, and ether. And there were many others, but they were harmful. Um, There's a thing called Fowler solution that was used to treat fevers and it contained arsenic. <laughs> that's, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Real bad idea. Now, calomel, which is also mercurious chloride was used for diarrhea. Now we know that mercury is bad, but mercury is excreted in high concentration in your saliva. So this led to excessive salivation loss of teeth, and gangrene of the mouth and cheeks in a lot of the patients. Again, the treatment is worse than, worse than what you had. You. Yep. you got diarrhea, but we're going to make your teeth fall out and give you gangrene of the mouth to stop your diarrhea. Yeah. you know That's not a fair trade. There's got to be another way. <laughs> but let's get back to Octagon Hall now that we've talked about some of these horrific um, medical practices that may have been going on at Octagon Hall. Now, the house originally had a cupola, which was used for part of the airflow. Well, it ended up being hit by lightning in 1916 and burned, and it was never replaced. They just kind of repaired the roof. Now, Mr. Caldwell used to keep his beehives in the cupola. According to the journal that the granddaughter shared, they would put the soldiers in a bee suit and put them up in there with the bees. So whenever Union soldiers would open the trap door to go into the cupola, the bees would be swarming around and they wouldn't go in and they'd back out quickly and not search the area. So it was a good way to hide soldiers from the Union Army because they wouldn't want to go in there with the bees. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, you know, it's funny to me. I mean, here, here's an army with, you know, guns and knives and jaggedy looking things and, you know, they're, I was thinking, what is there? There's bees in yeah. there. Well, it, your gun and knife ain't going to work on a bee. Well, true. But, you know, <laughs> you would think, you know, ah, you know, I, I'm going in here anyway. You know, forget these bees. Nope. Uh, well, maybe they maybe they had, you know, they were allergic to the bees and they knew it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, we can't go. Don't send Bill in. He'll have an anaphylactic shock. Now, <laughs> there were, uh, there was a little hiding place that was discovered up under the front steps. Now, while cleaning some of the brick, Billy Bird, who is the executive director of the Octagon Hall Museum, he noticed a section that didn't have any mortar. So he took the brick out and he discovered a crawl space up under the huge stone front steps. Now, apparently what they would do is they'd take the brick out, crawl in there, and set the brick back without any mortar in it. That would give the impression of a wall. So somebody could be hiding behind that and it, you know, nobody even think there was a way to get in there. Now he used a metal detector and he found some buttons and a whole bunch of 36 caliber bullets under those steps from the soldiers hiding there. So Matt, why don't we get into some of the hauntings, the interesting activity that happened probably because of all that Awful medical stuff we talked about. Yeah, so, you know, like we said at the top of the show, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, 
a lot of negative energy around the plantation itself mm-hmm. and especially focused on the house with it serving as, as a hospital. Um, but you know, it, it, it's also right in the middle of all this war. Right. Okay. So we've talked about that before with, with war and death, you know, leaving a lasting impression on the area. And I mean, there's numerous civil war battlefields that are considered to be haunted. Um, this is no different, right? You know, because there there was a lot of fighting here, and there was a lot of death, either but from the battle or from injuries caused by battles. And soldiers were brought here to the hospital to try to recover and get treatment. Mm-hmm. So when the Bird family bought Octagon Hall in two thousand one, they started renovating, as you know anybody would do. You know, but much like we've talked about other buildings. When you go through renovations, you can wake up whatever's there. Yep. They don't like it. Yeah. You start moving things around, you start changing things. And, and Billy bird, he is an expert in historical restoration from using the same materials, even the same tools to do these restorations. So it's not like he's coming in and just modernizing things. Right. He's just, in there doing the work. Sure. But the work in and of itself, you know, can bring things to life. Or in some cases, it puts enough people in that location where activity that has already been going on is now more noticeable. Right. Somebody's there to witness it. Right. So they noticed some strange things going on from the very beginning. And Beds were part of the historical exhibits um, that were found. And a lot of the beds in Octagon Hall would have this situation where they would appear that someone had been lying in them, although no one had been. People started noticing shadowy figures appearing on the staircase and doors would begin to open and close all on their own. So as the renovation went on, They began to hear disembodied voices and would place digital recorders, you know, in all the different rooms in order to try to capture them. Now, sometimes these voices weren't heard by the researchers at the time. They were EVPs. Sure. And they said the voices seemed to come from nowhere. They, They couldn't pinpoint specific locations that would be more active than others. You know, these recorders would just pick up voices you know, just from wherever they were. Right. It didn't matter. There wasn't a, a, a single spot you could sit a recorder and say, well, this is where we're going to pick it up. Yeah, it was all over the house. Definitely something here, but nothing over here. Yeah, it was all over the house. And sometimes they would get, they would, they would ask questions and they would get answers on the EVP and said a lot of the statements were to the extent of leave that alone. <laughs> you know. Quit moving stuff around yeah. here. Leave it alone. <laughs> you know, whether it had some historical significance or it was significant to the individual that was there, or, you know, a lot of people feel like members of the Caldwell family are part of the spirits that inhabit Octagon Hall. Sure. So you're essentially coming in and rearranging their house. Sure. If I ever haunt a place that I, I lived, that would probably be most of what I said. Yeah. Hey, quit touching my stuff. I hate that color. Yep. Stop. No, <laughs> that's not the way it looked when I was here. 
That's you bad. can't put those kind of shades in this house. What are you crazy? Yeah. What are you thinking? <laughs> it lets in too much light. Green walls and purple carpet doesn't look good, no matter what you think. Are we going back to the '60s yeah. now? <laughs> I, I don't care what they did on Trading Spaces. This you're not doing it. <laughs> but many of the stories of the ghost stories surrounding this property, like I said, are considered to be directly tied to the Caldwell family, including the smell of flowers and then the stench of decay. Now we're going to get we're going to get into more of that cuz that that's that's a pretty cool story. Um but local police um have been summoned out to the house because burglar uh I can't talk today. <laughs> cheese burglar? Bur- cheese burglar alarms. <laughs> burglar alarms uh would go off on occasions only for them to arrive and find the house completely empty. Now children who have toured the house have reported seeing other children in historical dress playing in and around the home, yet the adults didn't witness these children. Right. You know, so I'm sure a lot of that is just passed off as, ah, you know. but Kids' imagination. Sure. But what what I have learned, you know, raising children, Mm -hmm. is that when it comes to something like this, when kids are scared, they're usually telling the truth. Yep. You know, unless they've got a motive. Like our kids, yeah, <laughs> they want to get in the bed, right? You know, hey, can we pile in the bed. Um, but for the most part, if a child witnesses something that is strange like that, and, and they're telling an adult, they're usually telling the truth, or at least the truth that they believe, right? You know, they believe what they saw. If it was if it was made up, they'd be friends, and right, you know, or you'd get the typical, you know, there's a monster under my bed, and it looks like one of those from Monsters Inc. Yeah, you know, but again, you know, that's, you know, a child laying in a bed at night trying to go to sleep. I don't want to be alone. I'm afraid of the dark, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about kids that have come there to go on tour. Right. You know, it's they have really no reason to come up and say, hey, I saw this. Yeah. We got a really good story about that, too. So other visitors and researchers have seen the image of a man in one of the windows. They've seen ghostly children playing in the driveway and a variety uh, of apparitions in the basement. And the basement seems to be, you know, a pretty active place in Octagon Hall. It's probably one of the places that didn't get much renovation done. Most so, likely. Or it was going to be last on the list. Right. So so there, you know, it was more original, and, mm-hmm. and maybe the spirits felt comfortable there. Right. Or like we talked about, hiding out um, soldiers and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So not only the basement, but the attic, too. Um, seems to be pretty active. Um, Billy Bird, who, who currently, you know, is, is the, the, he's the restorer and he, and he runs the, the museum. Billy Bird says that one night when he was there alone, he would hear, uh, strange noises as if somebody was walking around the house, footsteps, doors closing and opening, mm-hmm. things like that. When he knew that he was in the house by himself. Now, during one of the Halloween ghost tours, and, and they do this. I mean, you can go up there and you can you can take tours anytime. They have they have specific times when you can actually tour. I mean, it's not like open to the public all the time. Right. But they do have specific times, but they also have specific events. You know, you can you can go and actually take the ghost tour. You know, the traditional tour is more historical, but you can take the ghost tour 
That's where they shove you in the spot under the stairs yeah. and they make you stay there <laughs> they, all night. They brick you in yeah. to that crawl space. <laughs> stay there with this recorder and we'll come back and get you yeah. in an hour. Yeah. Don't don't leave because yeah. we want to make sure you can catch everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you can, and, and an investigator, uh, an investigative teams can actually rent out the property and stay there overnight and, and do a full on investigation if they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they embrace this. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's not something that they're like, you know, oh, well, it's kind of haunted. I mean, I mean, they embrace it. You know, they, they didn't at first, you know, yeah. it, you know, we've got, you know, a lot of interviews that, you know, this freaked them out a lot. This was not something they were planning on when they went in to renovate this place. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you would think, oh man, maybe we'll renovate this place and it'll be haunted. They, they weren't really thinking that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they found out after the fact. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, crap. We got guests. So, so during one of these Halloween ghost tours in 2003, the fireplace kettle, which hangs on a movable arm, just swung out into the room. Now, this was not a part of the tour. Hmm. Okay. Now, I'm sure the people on the tour thought, oh, this is part of the tour. It wasn't. But you got to understand how that was set up. You know, in, you know, in kitchens around that period, you would have a large kettle on like a, an iron arm mm-hmm. that would swing out of the fire, you would use a large hook and you'd pull the kettle out because you sure as heck wasn't going to reach in there. Right. And it would swing outward on this arm. Adjust the heat and pull something off if you wanted to. Got it. Yeah. You know. But it's it's not something that just happens. I mean, th- these things are heavy. Sure. And of course, you know, if, if they're made of iron, you know, it, it's it's going to take some effort to get that thing to swing out with the kettle on yeah, it. Just lift up my cast iron pan and you'll understand. Right. And we're not talking about a tea kettle. Either. Right. You know, we're talking, think more cauldron. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. you know, when you so see a witch's a, cauldron, yeah, yeah. this is a heavy thing. So, you know, even, even to rig it up modern day to do that on demand would still be very difficult. Right. And, and if you believe, you know, that bird is trying to keep the historical aspect of this home. He's not going to do something like that, right. you know, to trick people. So, you know, something that big and that heavy moving on its own, you know, if, if the tourists weren't scared when it happened at first, when they saw the tour guide be like, Oh crap, you know, <laughs> they were scared then. <laughs> yeah. So it's some witnesses say they have seen the apparition of a man riding on a wagon in the backyard. And many speculate that this is the ghost of Andrew Caldwell himself. Now, others have seen a civil war era soldier outside on the property, leaning against a tree, you know, so these apparitions are they're They're detailed enough that people are making out uniforms and, and clothing, things like that to be able to say that that guy right there, he's either a civil war reenactor. Or that's a ghost. <laughs> yeah. It's not like an anomalous blob. <laughs> right. Right. Which, which that makes it really cool that you you get enough detail. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, and, you know, thinking about all those Civil War soldiers that were around there, the likelihood that one of them stuck around after they died, probably, it's probably pretty good. Yeah. So we talked about the, the reenactment, you know, that, that goes on to 
So during a February reenactment of the Confederate withdrawal from Bowling Green, like Adam mentioned, you know, Bowling Green was evacuated, you know, as the Union troops were moving south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their subsequent encampment at Octagon Hall, some really strange things happened. A group of the reenactors decided they were just going to spend the night in the house. Okay. They reported that they heard noises such as footsteps and the opening and closing of doors all night long. Now, the next morning, they discovered that a feather bed in one of the upstairs bedrooms had a deep imprint in the shape of a body, almost as if someone had slept there. Now, they made a joke that one of them was probably playing a prank, but they knew that nobody had slept in that bed. So there really wasn't a reason. So they immediately thought it was a joke. And it would have been left at that had it not been for the fact that one of the caretakers was alone cleaning up the house after this event and noticed that the feather bed looked like someone had been lying in it. So she straightened it up. She hadn't heard about what the the reenactors had seen. Mm-hmm. and thought it was a joke. So she it wasn't on her mind. But when she came back through, the shape was there again. Oh, wow. And she knew she had just straightened it up, and the shape was back. Yeah. So you know now you've got two stories from two different people at the same time, and they coincide, and one didn't know about the other. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So on another occasion, the burglar alarm went off at the house and a police officer arrived, but he couldn't find any intruders. So he went into one of the front rooms and along with um, the, this article just says the caretaker, but later it's, it's Billy bird that was there mm-hmm. and heard the doorknob to the parlor jiggling. Like someone was on the other side trying to open the door. Now the officer pulled out his gun and he went around Roundhouse. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he went around to come in from the other side, thinking he could sneak up behind whoever was in the parlor. But when he got there, there wasn't anyone there. Now, the two men watched as the doorknob turned and the door opened. And in an interview with Pamela Bird, she mentions that most of the time when this happened, that the door, the motion sensor or the door alarm that would be triggered would be on an interior door, not an outside door. Right. So somebody would have set off the alarm had they managed to go in from the outside. Right. This would be someone was already in the house. Yeah. You know, when they set the alarm. So it's, it's not a door that you would expect. Right. Now, and I get the whole Oh, it's an old place. It's an old house and there's drafts and all that stuff. These are also old doors. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been in a really old house, old doors aren't, aren't like doors in your house now. No, they're they are, solid. They are, they're solid and they are heavy and they, they have aged and weathered and they're not always easy to open. They get stuck, you know, old houses expand, especially door facing. So this is not something that would just happen. Right. You know, I mean, something would have had to have pushed open a door enough to get it open and to set off a motion sensor or a door alarm. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Um, the alarm would typically go off in the middle of the night, which would cause Billy to have to get up, drive out to Octagon Hall, and meet the police officer. Not only because he was the proprietor, but because the police came out there so often, they got to where they didn't want to go in the house by themselves. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. Yeah, I mean, they were nervous enough that they would wait until he got there before they entered the house. Yep. So... You know, th- there was obviously enough stuff going on that it, hey, it scared the cops. Yeah, you know? they knew it wasn't people. They can deal with people, but so, so yeah, so so uh, so one night, after getting out of bed at around two o'clock in the morning, Billy arrives, goes in, same situation, interior door alarm had gone off, and so Bird says that he stood in the house and he cried out aloud, "Okay, that's enough." I'm not coming back out here anymore. And he said from that point forward, that that event kind of stopped. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, again, ask nicely, firmly, you know, mm-hmm. for, don't, don't do this anymore. Yeah. And and a lot of times the activity will stop if it's something like this. It's annoying. You know, we, we've even given that advice to some people. So, mm-hmm. so on, on uh, December 15, 2003. Uh, This is what I alluded to earlier. The house suddenly filled with the smell of flowers, much like the smell of a funeral home. Mm -hmm. The smell was particularly strong in the parlor. Now, there were no live flowers in the house at the time. But a few minutes after that, the smell changed to the smell of decay. And it was described as the smell of rotting meat. Yeah. Now, the date is significant because Andrew Jackson Caldwell died on December 15th. Now, it's known that his body was put on display in the parlor. Now, you know, this was commonplace. Right. You know, houses had a parlor, and if a member of the family died, this is this is where they, you know, lie in state, so right. to speak. The wake. Yeah. Now, this was before the days of embalming. Mm-hmm. So, you're, you're going to get a smell you know, as, you know, over a period of, you know, a few days, the the decomposition process is going to begin. Right. Which is you know? why the flowers are brought in. That's right. Flowers and then the smell on the same date that Caldwell died. Right. You know, pretty significant there. Now, there's another story that we talked about children seeing the ghosts of other children. Now, in this story, there was a family who visited Octagon Hall with their five-year-old daughter. Now, as the girl wandered around the house, she eventually made it downstairs. Now, when she caught back up to her parents, she said there was a little black girl in a blue dress hiding downstairs. So when they asked why the little girl was hiding, she told them it was because she was scared because she had shot her brother. Now, when the staff went and investigated, they did not find any girl in any blue dress. And they also found no record of any such incident of a little girl shooting her brother. Right. But so much has happened in this house and in and around the time of its construction in 1859, it's really possible that an event like this went unreported, undocumented, and long since forgotten. Sure. You know, so... You know, just because you can't find record of an event like this in in a in a situation like Octagon Hall, it's really not that unusual. 
Right. You know, I mean, so much history. Yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, because, you know, the Caldwells were slave owners, you know, it, it was unlikely that, that anything that happened to, you know, uh, an African American on that property went completely unreported sure. and undocumented. Yeah. You know, so, you know, like I said, just because they can't find a historical record of this event doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right. You know, but obviously this little girl saw something down there. Now there was an investigator and, and Billy bird, he, he's an investigator too. You know, he, he's a paranormal investigator, man. I don't know how you could be a historical restorer and not right to some know, degree. Yeah. Delve into it. Cause you're going to come across some of this stuff. But he does have investigators that work directly for them, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that do research on the building and look up stories like this and actually do investigations in the home at night, things like that. Um, but he was working there late one night, and he said he started hearing footsteps overhead. Again, a common thing in the home. But this time, he said that the footsteps were so loud that he knew it had to be a human upstairs. So when he goes upstairs, he is expecting to see an intruder. Right. So when he gets up there, it's dark. It's late at night. He says, there's just enough light coming into the window. He says, okay, who's here? And said in that light, he sees what he estimated to be about a seven foot shadow figure. Mm. And after a few seconds, the shadow charged him. Oh, wow. Okay. So this investigator says, and, and according to, to Billy Bird, this guy is, he's a formidable guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's no, he's no shrimp. You know, he's, he's good size and he's dealt with this kind of stuff, you know, for a long time. So, you know, it, it wasn't like just somebody walking up there cold, you know, oh, you know, there's right. something's after me. But this investigator said he immediately fell to his knees began to have trouble breathing, felt nauseated, and started having chest pain. Now, he was able to get outside, and after a while, finally got his composure, but he was so frightened by the encounter that he told Bird he was almost afraid to go back into the house and was ready to leave all of his equipment inside and go home. So, the same figure has been witnessed by other investigators and was actually captured in a photograph taken from the driveway. Now, during an investigation one February, a camera had been set up to take pictures of the house in 10-second intervals. The investigators state that the shadow appeared in the basement window almost as if it was watching them take the picture. Now, I went and looked up this photograph, mm-hmm. and it's, it's from a distance, but then they show you the zoomed-in photo, and you can see the outline of what appears to be a silhouette of a man in a window. Now, the catch on this is that it's a dark window. There's not a light inside, but you can still make out an area that seems much darker than the rest of the window. That's crazy. And it does have the shape of a very tall man, you know, as if somebody was standing there watching them take these pictures. Okay. And, you know, we we've discussed shadow people on this show and the, the determination is that shadow people are not ghosts, right? They they are not the spirits of dead humans. 
They are something else. Mm -hmm. But there is an idea that shadow people will tend to inhabit places where there's a lot of energy that would cause other paranormal activity. Sure. It just attracts them. Sure. So, you know, the, you know, if you're buying into any of this, the idea that there might be a shadow entity or two hanging out at Octagon Hall along with the rest of these disturbances, probably pretty good. Yep. Not really too far off base. No. Now, Billy and Pamela, Pamela is uh, Billy's wife. They report that it's common for them to leave with all the lights off in the house. And as they're going down the driveway, they will see lights begin to turn on from room to room. As if someone's walking through the house, turning on lights in each room they go into. Mm -hmm. Now, the lights are on motion sensors. Now, this is done, you know, for the purpose of the museum. I'm sure right. to conserve energy, if there's nobody in this room, we don't need the lights on. Yeah. You know, but if a tour comes by, the lights come on in the room. But in order for that to happen, something's got to move. Yeah. In an empty house in the middle of the night to make the light come on. And it's probably not a mouse. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, that's just, you know, if you know how those light sensors work, you know, they they have a sensor that broadcasts across the room, not necessarily across the floor, mm -hmm. you know, to see if, a, if an individual walks in there, the light will come on. And a lot of this is done so that, you know, if you have these in your house, you know, a pet walking across the floor or something like that's not going to trip a sensor. They don't have pets in this house. Right. You know, there shouldn't be anything moving around in this house when no one's there that would cause these lights to come on, especially not, you know, sequentially, mm -hmm. you know, where you're actually watching different rooms turn on at different intervals, you know, because, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people say, eh, it's a malfunctioning sensor or something like that. You know, there's a timer that, you know, got power went out or something like that and it caused it to malfunction. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, you, you could probably come up with any of those. Right. But it's probably it's probably not going to cause multiple lights to come on, you know, as In you're succession. standing. Yeah. You know, where you're watching different rooms turn on. Yeah. You know, as you're leaving, knowing that you just locked the place up and turned off all the lights. Mm -hmm. Now, Pamela Bird has stated in interviews that, that she's terrified of the house. Um, but like I said, they've they've kind of learned to accept it. And she reports that she's experienced someone playing with her hair from behind multiple times. That's weird. Yeah. She's also heard the sound of a little girl singing or humming near the stairwell. Now, oddly enough, when she went closer to the stairs, the sound would stop. But as she walked away, the singing would resume. Now, this is suspected to be the voice of Mary Elizabeth Caldwell, who was the daughter of James Caldwell. Mm. Okay. Now, Mary Elizabeth is is just one of the of the named spirits that resides in Octagon Hall. And she's probably the most active. Now, Elizabeth, as they called her, was playing in the basement, which was the winter kitchen, um, with her cousin. And as they're playing around, her dress got too close to the fire and it caught on fire. And Elizabeth burned to death. She was just a child. I've heard ages from, you know, anywhere from, you know, five to seven years of age. You know, she was young. Jeez. But they buried her on the property in the family plot. And so 
many people believe because of the tragic way of her death and the fact that she's buried right there on the property, it, it would lend her spirit to hang around. Now, near Elizabeth's grave, a young girl, girl's voice was recorded crying, Mommy, while no child was physically in the area. Now, Billy reports receiving a photograph of Mary Elizabeth's mother, which had been found in a trunk in Logan, Kentucky. Now, the photo had Elizabeth Akers Caldwell's name written on the back. That was her mother. That was um, James Caldwell's first wife. Mm-hmm. Now, Billy and Pamela were, of course, ecstatic that they had gotten this piece of history for this house. Sure. And so Billy went and he had the photo enlarged and then put in an antique frame. Now, one Wednesday morning, Billy was in the house by himself and he went to hang the framed photo in one of the upstairs bedrooms. Now, as he turned to go downstairs, he says that he distinctly heard a child's voice say, Mommy. Now, Billy said at that point, he made it down those stairs pretty quick. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, now, even, even if you're in a house that's had this kind of activity, you hear something like that. Whoa, you're going to take off. Definitely. I mean, I just, you know, when I, when I heard this in an interview with, with Billy Bird, and he says, I got down those steps pretty fast. I was like, I bet you did, mm-hmm. dude. I was like, you know, that would, that would have gotten me too. Like the I, Scooby-Doo thing yeah. where all you see is the, the puff of smoke yeah. left. Adam would have shot off like a rocket. Yeah. Because, you know, up oh, it's child ghost. I'm yeah. out. Done. I'm like, back. I'm done. <laughs> Be selling the house. <laughs> We're done. Goodbye. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Mary Elizabeth can of- often be heard singing in the house. And even uh, Pamela, she recounts one time where she was, they were wrapping up for the evening and she was kind of singing a little tune as she was finishing. And as they were leaving, she stopped and heard a child's voice continue the song. Oh, wow. After she had stopped, which is, I mean, that's pretty cool. But Billy Bird reports that he has seen Mary Elizabeth at least twice while he's been in the house. The first time he recalls was in the basement. And he said she actually appeared solid, solid enough that he thought a child had wandered into the basement. Mm. Now, Billy says that he immediately said, "Hun, do you need some help? And said that at that point, she began to turn, and as she turned toward him, she became more ethereal and eventually just kind of vanished. He, he describes it as kind of folding into herself, just oh, wow. kind of like, whoosh, and then she was gone. And he said, you know, it took him about 10 minutes to pick his jaw up off the floor. Yeah, right? No <laughs> kidding. Kind of the same way. So... He said he he had seen her again, and this time she was more of a translucent image that we would kind of think of, you know, if you're going to see a spirit, but was but was walking away from him at, at another location in the house. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like I said, at least the the owner has seen her twice and has said this has got to be, you know, Mary Elizabeth's spirit. Right now, some visitors and investigators have claimed that they have felt Mary Elizabeth hold on to their arm while they tour through the home and then eventually let go, you know, that she'll, you know, tug on their clothes and actually hold on to them with that sensation of somebody holding you, you know, as you walk along, you know, like a child would come up and just hold your hand. So, you know, she's, like I said, she's probably the most active 
you know, named spirit in there. But there's a couple others. Another one is named Eddie. Now, Eddie's name. Oh, Eddie. Oh, Eddie. <laughs> Not Cousin Eddie. Oh. <laughs> That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> this, was, this was Eddie, and it was a psychic that visited the location. Um, well, a psychic, you know, an investigator, somewhere in there. But anyway, they had had some communication with this particular spirit that seems to be located primarily in the attic to get the name Eddie. Mm-hmm. Now, Eddie's story is that um, he was shot by a Union soldier, and he ran into the house looking for safety, and he managed to get to the attic and hide. Now, the Union troops didn't vacate really quickly, so it was three days before they left, and the owners could come back. And by the time they got back, Eddie was dead. And they found him in the attic. Mm. Now, Eddie's activity includes, you know, walking, footsteps, except for the fact that his walk is very unique because it sounds like he's dragging one of his legs. Mm. So instead of just the typical thump, 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 thump of footsteps, you're going to hear a thump. You like that? Yeah. The graveyard tells sound effects. I like it. You know. I like it. Going to put you in charge of Foley work. <laughs> I'm like the guy from Police Academy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Spaceballs, whichever one you remember. Um, but yeah, so he's got a very unique walking pattern that they can attribute to him specifically. Um, another one is Jerome Clark. Now, Jerome Clark has a pretty interesting history while he was alive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Jerome was a suspected guerrilla for the Confederate Army during the Civil War. And if, if that's a term you're unfamiliar with, you know, guerrillas are, um, you know, sometimes armed citizens, you know, or they belong to maybe a, a paramilitary group. They work on their own, independent of the Army. Yeah. They're helping, or at least what they think is helping. But not directly But they're affiliated. not directly under orders from, you know, a, a commanding general, right. you know, for the Army. Now Clark would stay would he would stage raids against Union army camps in Kentucky. Now he proved himself not only to be a prolific killer but also very difficult to catch. Now Clark wore his hair long and he was very fair complected which led many to believe that he was the inspiration behind Sue Mundy which was a fictitious character created by the editor of the Louisville Journal George D Prentice. Now Prentice published articles about the guerrilla Sue Mundy as a way to exhibit commander of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, one Union Major General Stephen G. Burbridge, as incompetent by allowing a female paramilitary guerrilla to terrorize his army. Now, Clark was eventually caught and hanged for his roles in the attack, despite his claim that he was a regular member of the Confederate Army and should have been treated as a prisoner of war. Now, he denied being Sue Mundy of the Prentice stories. His portrait and his gun are displayed in Octagon Hall. And many investigators claim to have had communication with his spirit as if it's tied to the presence of his gun. And they also say he doesn't like to be referred to as Sue Mundy. I bet not. (laughs) So it's best when you speak of him to call him Jerome. A boy named Sue. (laughs) But, you know... 
like we said at the top of the show, there's a lot of history here and, and civil war history is, is fascinating. It's horrifying, but it's very fascinating. You know, there were, there were a lot of really unique characters involved, a, a lot of wild stories and bizarre deaths. Yeah. A lot Vi- of death, violent deaths. Um, you know, and a lot of folks that I'm sure hung around for a quite a long time inside Octagon Hall waiting to die or mm-hmm. hoping to get better or dying because of the treatment they received. Right. You know, so there is just a ton of energy. And there was mention by one of the birds in an interview that perhaps the octagon shape of the house, you know, lended itself to holding on to this kind of spiritual energy. I couldn't really find anything like that, but yeah, but the, but it is very unique and there might be more to that. I mean, you know, it's an oddly shaped house. As Adam mentioned, it's the only octagon shaped house in all of Kentucky. Not that that really surprises me. I can't say that I've ever seen another octagon shaped house. No, if I had one and like, you know, solicitor knocked on the door. I'd just go and go, go around, yeah. go around. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, so there's a lot of unusual things that are about the, the plantation, the house itself and all the history. Um, but Adam and I had no idea that the, the hauntings that went on there were, were just so dramatic. Yeah, and as prolific as they are. Absolutely. Um, and the fact that it's just down the road from us, you know, about an hour. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed looking into some of these things and, you know, hopefully Adam and I will get a chance. We we've reached out to, uh, to the birds, uh, you know, if they wanted to share anything, um, we, we haven't heard anything back as of yet. Um, but, but if we do, and if we do get the chance to visit Octagon Hall, um, there might be a follow-up episode sure. to this one just because it is somewhere close enough for us to visit and, and take a look at firsthand. Um, you know, so, uh, so hopefully we'll get a chance to do that. Yeah, hopefully so. But be sure and, uh, and go, as I said, and check out our sponsor for tonight's show, uh, hers at hers.com. Um, they're really doing great things. And, you know, Adam and I care about all of our listeners, but you know, we hope we're we're putting forth some uh, information that's very beneficial to our female listener population. Um, go and check out our new website. Yes, you know it's fantastic. It, it's much easier to navigate, um, and you'll find you know more information about Adam and myself. There's going to be some more pictures that are going to be posted on there, so you'll get to see the graveyard. You'll get to see you know Adam and myself, our ugly mugs on mm-hmm. there. And, um, <laughs> But you can also listen to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find links to purchase our merchandise. Um, and I believe we're, we're going to have a link on the website to where if you aren't interested necessarily in being a monthly patron, you can make a one-time donation to the show if right. that's more your speed. Um, so we've had some listeners, you know, request something like that. Um, and, you know, if you're so inclined, you can become a patron and, Thank you so much to everybody who has donated uh, to the show. It just helps us make it better. Please, as I, as I beat this dead horse, go and rate and review us on iTunes because this is the easiest way for us to come up the charts 
and more people find us. Right. Okay. So check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And as always, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.